All right, welcome to the Toasty Kettle Podcast, where we help you connect with the past through food. My name is James, I'm your host, and today is episode 80. We have a special treat today. I have Tate Matheson on to talk all about what it takes to grow apples and other fruit. Tate is a fifth-generation member of the Matheson family that owns and operates to milk growers. He has a tremendous passion for the family business. He grew up on the farm taking on a number of roles, and his current role is director of sales. Now, before we get to the interview with Tate, I want to thank you all for finding the show. The numbers have been exploding lately, and I love it. I've loved reading your reviews as they come in, and I enjoy the boost that they give me. Please keep them coming. As always, if you like what you hear, make sure you subscribe to the show. That way you won't miss amazing episodes like what we have on tap today. Now for the interview with Tate. Thanks, James. Uh, my name is Tate Matheson. I'm a fifth generation uh, cherry, apple, and pear grower here in Wenatchee, Washington. And uh, our family business is to milk growers in which I serve as director of sales uh, now. And so, yeah. Awesome. So obviously on, on the website, looking around, there is a lot of great content, a lot of good history there. And I want to hear it straight from you. How did Stimilk get its start? Yeah, well, it, it goes a while back. Uh, so my great, great grandfather, Thomas Kyle, uh, he came over from Scotland and, uh, you know, they didn't really have enough food in Scotland at the time. And so his whole family packed up and moved to Nova Scotia in uh, Canada. Well, they really had the same kind of issues in Nova Scotia at the time as they did in Scotland. So at 12 years old, Thomas Kyle jumped on a clipper ship and sailed all the way around uh, North and South America and landed in uh, San Francisco. And uh, that was kind of the later 1800s, and, and so he started following the, uh, the gold rush north, actually. So San Francisco, and he was going north, and it was, uh, he was a little bit behind kind of the leading edge of the uh, gold rush, and it was in Alaska. Ultimately, he was going to go to Alaska, but ended up in, uh, in Washington State at the time, and he was working at, at, a, at a gold mine in one of the mountain passes uh, near Wenatchee. And, uh, you know, the Homesteader Act was happening at that time. And so he ended up kind of finding a little location. Uh, he said, it, you know, I, obviously it was passed down to me, but he said that this little hill that we homesteaded on looked a lot like Scotland, like what he remembered back at home. And uh, it was Stemelt Hill. So that's how we got our name is uh, that's where he homesteaded on Stemelt Hill. And he would uh, he would work in the in the in the. Um, you know, gold mine for, you know, however many weeks and he would come home and he would improve the property and he improved it and was able to get awarded the deed of, uh, I think it was 80 acres is what he ended up having uh, when he started on top of Stemelt Hill. And what uh, kind of happened at, at that point now, we're kind of transitioning in the early 1900s, uh, the Great Northern Railroad was coming through Wenatchee. And so at that time, Wenatchee was pretty isolated from the rest of the state. Um, it's along the Columbia River, and you could get there by paddle boat and 
Um, it was pretty difficult to get to because there's a fair amount of rapids and it wasn't like you know, the Mississippi where you could just go straight there from the ocean. Uh, it was pretty complex. But once the railroad came through, uh, Thomas Kyle kind of saw an opportunity to, to do agriculture. And so it took a number of years, but he, he, uh, he dug a, a, an irrigation ditch or canal um, kind of way up into the mountains above Stemelt Hill. So Stemelt Hill kind of fits in kind of the foothills below the Cascade Mountain Range. He dug four and a half mile ditch by himself to bring water to the, his little homestead place. And about uh, kind of the early 1919s, he, he planted his first orchard, which is a, was a 15 acre orchard, which in today's world was, that's not very big, but at, at that time it was way more than you could eat and way more than you could pick by yourself. He had, you know, kind of he, a commercial endeavor in mind when he first planted that orchard. And so it was majority cherries actually. So Stemel kind of sits in a pretty unique spot. You know, you're near the Columbia River. Um, we have a, quite a bit of access to water, but it's a very dry climate here, very desert-like. Mm-hmm. So um, actually ended up being a very good spot to grow cherries and, and apples. But once the railroad came through, he, you know, basically was an economic boom for this little kind of river mountain town. And uh, really, that's where the apple industry started. So the apple industry started all along the Columbia River and the Columbia River kind of goes north to south and and eventually, you know, goes up into Canada. And that's where people were able to plant apple orchards. And so the Washington apple industry was a bit of a latecomer to, um, you know, the the apple kind of supply where it was kind of operated more in the Midwest. Uh, You know, that's kind of where Johnny Appleseed and that sort of story kind of uh, really or, in, or, or originated. But the apple industry in Washington really, you know, with the railroad, development of the railroad really gave access to, you know, these markets, you know, the, the basically the uh, railroad went from Wenatchee and went to Chicago within, I mean, within just days. And so that was a big economic boom for us. And so he planted this orchard, uh, cherries, apples, and some pears. And uh, he, he had to all winter he would dig and uh, he would he would actually cut the ice, store the ice over the winter. And uh, we had a big barn and we had to do a lot of things. So not only was he, uh, you know, a, he, he worked in a gold mine. He also had kind of a barn and, and he, he, it was a kind of a stopover between uh, two small towns, Ellensburg and Wenatchee. And there was a, basically a, a trail that went from those two towns and it stopped right through our homestead. And so Within, within this big barn, he, he had a big uh, stash of sawdust and he would store his ice. And so then whenever the cherry season came, he literally would go pick his crop and pack his own rail cars and, and provide the ice for that. So it was a, you know, if you think about how hard it is today, you know, it was just infinitely more difficult, you know, in his day to kind of get his start in agriculture. Yeah, that sounds like uh, like quite the uh, the workload there. You know, you think about before machines and doing it all by hand, and then the ice and like you said, digging his ditch and everything all by himself. When did he start to expand his operation and bring other people in? You know, a lot like all family businesses of that day, you you kind of expanded your your footprint by expanding your family, right? So right. that's how you ended up, you know, garnering labor. And um, so Thomas Kyle, he had a son, Christopher, 
and uh, Christopher kind of took over. And then Christopher had a son, Tom, Thomas, my, my grandfather. And it was really kind of that generation. So Grandpa Tom, he went off to World War II, uh, fought in World War II. And really, when he came back, really the, the homestead really hadn't grown a whole lot. It was probably more dilapidated, you know, at that point, because one, you know, they didn't need to have a, they weren't a way stop in, in between two small towns, you know, obviously people were driving cars, that sort of thing. So uh, they lost that kind of economic revenue there. You know, the fruit business was was beginning to be a lot more commercialized and we were uh, ended up kind of being, you know, up on a mountain. So we weren't really, you know, near town and it was becoming a little bit more difficult to access the market. Bigger companies and bigger uh, families were getting into the fruit business at that point. So my grandfather, you know, he was really the one and it was that generation that really started to grow the business. And it was really, it grew out of kind of economic hardship, I would say. So uh, my grandfather's father, he passed away in a farming accident and really it was my, my grandfather, Tom, and my grandmother, Adelaide, who went forward in the business and really started to, you know, kind of find its, its, its way. So, uh, you know, it was in the, in the kind of the mid, early 50s. This is kind of a, kind of a real important story for uh, the Stemelt story is that in 1953, my grandfather picked 100 tons of cherries um, off of the home place. And at that time, that was a lot of cherries. It's still a lot of cherries if you think about a 100 mm-hmm. tons. Um, and he, he went and he delivered that fruit to the local cooperative. And, uh, at the end of the season, he got a net return of $89. Now it seems like, you know, at that time, $89, more than $89 today, but it was certainly not enough to, you know, sustain a family of five and, uh, you know, have the orchard go forward. And right. so, yeah. And so he, at that point, uh, Grandpa Tom was married and uh, my grandma, Lorraine, who's still alive, she said, you know, Tom, you need to, you know, figure out what's going wrong with this farm and fix it or go down to town and get a job. And really, it was kind of at that point, um, he really decided to double down and figure out how to really improve this because he saw that the fruit that he grew on top of this hill, Stemelt Hill, was the best you know this is a kind of a cherry and an apple story but in particular cherries and so he uh, that following year traveled to the major metropolitan markets uh, to see how his fruit was sold and at that time the all the fruit was sold uh, at auction so you Mm -hmm. would get a delivery of cherries in chicago or into new york city uh, atlanta and your your grower lot would go up on auction and when he saw the quality of his fruit at auction, he saw that it was not very good. You know, the, the quality was poor, the stems were brown, the fruit had lost its luster. And he set out at that point to really improve the supply chain and a cold chain to have the fruit the way he picked it, the way he grew it and make it go, go to market in the same fashion. So he was really instrumental in developing, uh, you know, best practices in the orchard for, for harvest, for storage, uh, he he was really on the front edge of kind of cooling fruit right out of the field before it got to the warehouse, before it got packed, and then really maintaining that supply chain, that cold chain, all the way through. And so that was really where the where we really started to grow. 
when 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 he kind of got that vision, he he and a few other growers on Stemelt Hill at that time kind of pooled the resources and put together a, a warehouse and started packing our own fruit, started doing it the right way. And there was immediate feedback in the marketplace that uh, the fruit, you know, like uh, my dad loves to tell the story and he, he, he remembers it. Uh, there was a customer in New York City that um, after they kind of got Stemelt going and, and had picked the crop and really done all the things that they wanted to do to really enhance the quality of the fruit, one of the buyers that bought our grower lot on the auction block had traveled back on the train and you know, he talked to my dad and he was a little boy at the time and my grandfather. And he said, I had to go back to look at where these cherries came from because when they got to the auction block, they shined like rubies. And uh, <laughs> that was that was a big deal. You know, I mean, no one had seen that. No one had seen, you know, what the fruit could really look like. And so, uh, yeah. And and after at that point, you know, Stemilt started growing. We started bringing on other growers other people started kind of catching the 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 wind that you know there was something happening up on this kind of you know Wenatchee's not a big place but all you know even outside of Wenatchee in this little place called Stemelt Hill and so that's that's really where it started to grow i really love that story because i think that's something that resonates with a lot of people where how often do we just dive into a, a business or a venture without really understanding the ins and outs and i i kind of I, I like the ultimatum that was given there by your, by your grandma. You, you had to figure this out or go get a real job because yeah, 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 it, $89 it, isn't going to take us very far. Family. Yeah. Oh, she, yeah. And she's still that way today. I mean, she's going to be 94 this wow. year and she, uh, she's still the same way. She lives up on Stemelt Hill, right on the homestead <laughs> in the house my grandpa built. And if you go up and visit her, she'll definitely give you that kind of advice, whether you asked her or not. I love it. I love it. Uh, yeah. And that's also a common theme in a lot of family businesses that I've interviewed where each generation has to kind of find their own way and how they're going to navigate. You can't continue to do the same things again and again and again, because the times change, markets change, appetites change. So over the years, as this has gone through each generation, what would you say are some innovations that have been made in addition, you know, you, you talked about how, uh, your grandfather got into the, the supply chain and really started looking at how, you know, start to finish what the fruit was doing. What are some other things that come to mind that really helped take the business forward for you guys? Well, it was really, how do you go and access the market and how do we, really get the true feedback from what the customers are telling us. And so at that time, uh, when my grandfather was really starting the business and really, it was really starting to grow, there were a number of different intermediaries between the farmer and the person who was gonna actually end up buying the fruit and taking it home to their family and feeding their family. And one of the big changes happened as my grandfather, he, he wanted to go out to the marketplace and see how his fruit was being sold, who was buying it, what was working, what wasn't. And the supply chain just didn't allow that. There was enough kind of regional and destination brokers and people kind of it, that just kind of helped the supply chain go forward. And uh, he, he went out to, to meet, uh, he was one of the first uh, growers to go out and meet retailers and meet his customers and try to 
really understand what they needed from him and the type of fruit that they needed. He also was pretty instrumental in developing a lot of foreign markets. And so at that time, you know, the Pacific Rim was really going, you know, really growing and, and our access to the Pacific Rim was quite strong uh, through the Port of Seattle. So we were really, really blessed to, to do that. And so whether it was Japan or Korea, uh, Australia, Vietnam, were all markets that he was real instrumental in trying to uh, get our products uh, into those markets. And we still maintain those markets today. So that was one of the big developments uh, within our industry. A another was really the development of, of new varieties and flavor profiles. And uh, James, you had kind of mentioned it earlier in our conversation, as you walk into the produce department, you just see almost just an ocean of, of apples and, you know, they're varying degrees of color and size. And, but I really feel like that's a, been a big innovation for us. And that is really trying to augment and find what the flavor profile uh, the customer really wants. You know, we love Red Delicious, uh, but at the same time, you know, it, it's, it's one flavor profile and arguably it, it maybe is not necessarily what uh, the modern consumer is looking for. And so uh, that's been a big development to, to have these new varieties and bring them, in, bring them to market and, and really uh, give the customer a lot of choice. And, and I think that's been really good for us. Yeah. So I'd, I'd like to dive a little bit deeper into that, you know, as well. So um, my father, he eats one variety of apple, a red delicious, that is his apple. And we all give him such a hard time about it because there's so many other flavors and textures that you can get out of an apple. So you talk about developing a new variety as this, uh, another innovation that helped push your business forward, help push the milk forward what is the process for developing a new variety of apple? And you can also, I mean, if it's applicable, you can also include cherries and pears in the discussion as well. Maybe just tell us a little bit more about what that process is like. Well, James, the first thing I would say to your father is keep eating those red delicious. You know, uh, we're not, we're not making more rest, red, red delicious customers out there. So, and we still have a few left, so he, he needs to keep <laughs> eating those and, you know, that's tell him that the, the grower said that's all right. Um, but yeah, you know, there, there's really two ways in which uh, new varieties get to market. Um, one is fairly directed and another is somewhat random. And so, Within these orchards, and, and I'll talk about the more random before I get into the more directed, they're all the same variety within the orchard. However, there is kind of genetic diversity within the orchard. And so um, you could have just naturally a, a variety that just, it, it just becomes different in, in nature. And so you could find new varieties that way. And they're just kind of, you know, it could be a, a chance mutation within a within a tree and you could have literally a branch that let's say you had red apples and within this one branch there was just pink apples and every year it was pink and observant growers can go through that orchard as they're walking through the orchard and a good grower is observant they'll they'll observe that and so what what you do then is then you take some of that genetic material like a branch and then you graft it upon another um, uh, rootstock which then will as that rootstock grows and that branch grows within that rootstock, uh, it'll express either that unique characteristic or it will go back to the way that it was 
you know, if, if it was a gala, that it would look like a gala. So that's kind of a random way in which we find new varieties. It's really just by nature giving us something new. So that's that's interesting. And then another way, and it this is the vast majority of new varieties and new selections come this way is through breeding. And so it's a much longer process than anyone would really like to admit. And it's a much older process than we, I mean, you could really even believe. So, so every apple that you get, it uh, has seeds in it. And those seeds are different than the apple that you're eating. So the seeds within every apple, it's neither the apple that you're eating or the other apple that pollinated that flower, right? So if you can just kind of in your mind's eye, uh, apple blossoms come out and a bee comes and pollinates that apple with pollen from another apple variety. Well, as that apple grows, the seeds or the offspring of that apple are different than the parents. And so literally what apple breeders do uh, here and all around the world, they take those seeds, plant those seeds and let those seedlings grow. And then they observe the fruit that comes off of them. Of course, you know, you're directed in that you want to breed good parents, right? And Mm -hmm. good parents bred with good parents generally make for good children. And I'm I'm talking apples here, not people. Okay. (laughs) We're not learning anything here, but yeah. Uh, it, uh, yeah. And so that's how you do it. You just do it over thousands and thousands and thousands of times. And of the thousands of times you do it, uh, it's 99.99, many, many nines chance that you're going to, you're not going to get a better selection, but in the off chance, you see something that's interesting, then you would begin to propagate it. And then you would begin to expand that material to see if that variety continues to be excellent and the characteristics that you saw continue on. And so the process can be quite, quite long um, from seedling to a commercial variety that maybe uh, wouldn't be available in the store, but it would be available to a grower like me, it would take at least 15 years to get one variety before I would even know you know, to even be on my radar to know if it was a good variety. So it's a very long-term process. Yeah. So that's something that I, I was kind of suspicious on that it would take, it would have somewhat of a long cycle before yeah. it's actually hitting the shelf in the store. So if I'm looking at, you know, some of these new varieties that just come out and it's like, they make such a big splash and everyone's talking about it. That is 15 years in the making. Yeah. It takes a long time. You know, you think when you plant a a seedling, it takes at least, you know, three to four years for that seedling to produce its first apple. You need to observe that seedling for, you know, at least two to three years to see if the varieties, if you liked it the first year, it takes a couple more years of observation. Then you got to propagate it and then see if it works in a commercial setting. So that, that means you have to replicate the genetic material by grafting on the rootstocks. And then you've got to observe that for, you know, another four years, maybe. And then you got to do commercial type testing. And that, I mean, it just, the years and years just begin to pile on. You know, we think that, uh, let's just take an apple that is relatively new, but uh, really well accepted. And, and Honeycrisp would be, you know, this example. And um, Honeycrisp, although the kind of, it's not our story, but the story of Honeycrisp is quite interesting and and you could probably find out about it. But uh, when it was commercially available for commercial growers to begin to plant and market, it was in the early nineties. And I can't remember my father 
literally getting the first little buds from the University of Minnesota. And uh, my brother and I helped bud them on the, on the rootstocks and watched them grow. Come to find out, we didn't think Honey Chris was going to make it. And we, we, we planted them and I think, I think we budded the trees in 91 or 92. And we pulled the trees out and grafted them over to Gala, and I think in 97. So, uh, you know, you think about that, like Honey Chris didn't become popular until about 2008. So it's yeah. uh, pretty funny how, how you can, how these varieties make it or they don't. So yeah, it takes a while. Yeah, that's fascinating. I think uh, I I think it can be very cyclical like that, where you know it, it might take some time for I guess consumers to really embrace a new variety, yeah. or what was good in the early two thousands, you know, might not be as good. Like I I keep going back to the Red Delicious, like that's the apple I grew up with. Every time I saw an apple growing up, it was Red Delicious, and and now there's just so many other you know, varieties out there that I can, I, I don't have to be limited to just the, the red delicious. Yeah. Well, James, it, it makes sense in the late nineties, literally seven out of 10 boxes, almost seven, it's a little over six out of 10 boxes out of Washington state were in fact red delicious. And so if you think about that, you had this, that's what people planted. And, you know, now it's just a fraction of the, of the crop today. And it comes right down to what you were kind of mentioning flavor profiles change and the customers want, you know, something unique and better and different, you know, the apple industry is able to respond to that. With a, with an apple that takes, you know, 15 years to develop, are you trying to kind of play fortune teller a little bit and, and think what are the, what are the tastes and appetites going to be like 10 years from now, 15 years from now, 30 years from now? And it, do you factor that into your development? You know, certain agricultural crops are, are, are characterized by how long you keep them. So you have annual crops, right? So things that you would plant and harvest in a year and then plant something different. And then you have what we call permanent crops. Well, that's how apples uh, are characterized. However, they're not as permanent as they used to be, right? So we, we grew Red Delicious for, you know, generations. And now we're cycling through these new varieties at a much more rapid clip, right? And we are not breeders ourselves. We're commercial farmers and growers. And so we have to travel. Literally, uh, my myself, my brother, and my father, we literally travel around the world looking for new varieties that we think would work. Let's say if you find a variety in uh, France or South Africa or wherever you might find the variety, that doesn't mean that variety will express those unique characteristics that you saw in its native climate as it would in Washington. And so really, you just have to be really uh, like, like, kind of back to my grandfather, you have to be close to the marketplace, to the customers, you have to really receive feedback from what they're saying and what they're, you know, how they're voting with their dollars and, and really try to make as best of an educated decision when you're planting, because one, it's a long road to get a variety from, you know, to commercial production. But then again, there's a huge amount of capital investment. Once you plant that orchard, you want to keep that orchard going as long as you can. And it, it can go for a long time 
just on the way it, you know an apple tree lives, it can live for many, many decades. However, the apple tree won't live for many, many decades because I think the customer will change their, you know, their desire and we'll have to change the new variety. So sure. Yeah, it's certainly, (laughs) it's, it's not an easy, easy thing to do. And you got to, and it's a little bit of an act of faith just to plant um, a new apple variety because no one asked for that new variety. You just think it's better than the rest of the varieties that we have available. No, I, you know, I've really, I've really appreciated the, the perspective and the conversation. I definitely will not view apples the same as I'm walking down the grocery store. Just, just thinking about the, the time and effort and energy that's gone into each variety and producing it. Uh, so as we're wrapping up here, you know, talking about family, talking about legacy, uh, real quick, what would you say is your contribution to your family legacy to the, the family business? I've been very blessed to be a part of a family that's been doing it for a long time. And there's definitely something to be said about kind of knowing your roots and having deep roots that, that has a, a real kind of centering way about it where, you know, you know, where you're from and you know that there's been many generations of your family that have lived there in that same place. Um, I grew up on the original homestead that my great, great grandfather, you know, started planting the first orchard on. So kind of my part of the, of the family legacy is really, you know, just to be brutally honest, just not to screw things up. That's number one thing I want to accomplish. Uh, My father still is, he's kind of the grower, right? So my dad's Mm -hmm. still out farming every day and that's what he gets up every morning to do. And, 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 uh, uh, my brother's in the business and he's, he's kind of my boss, but uh, he's the one who kind of packs the fruit and makes sure that the fruit uh, is stored and packed correctly. And then my um, portion of the business is really is talking to the customer and really finding the markets and helping uh, build or maintain the niches that we find. And I, I feel really blessed to be able to do that because I know my grandfather, that was one, one of the things that he really loved to do is really be in the marketplace and see the fruit being sold and talk to the customers who are buying the fruit. And that's kind of what I'm doing. And, and hopefully I can make a, a, a real positive impact on, on our family business. And, you know, um, in another five generations, um, if we're still going, hopefully that I'll be a part of that. I love it. I love it. Well, I, I, again, just so grateful for your time and, and hopping on today to to talk about apples with me and talk about fruit growing and, and your family story. It's, it's been really awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I just think it's a great endeavor to kind of talk about the past through food. And a lot of times I don't think of it that way, James, but it's, it's been really enlightening. I, I really appreciate your time with me. Special thanks to Tate for coming on the show today. There's a lot more history and facts about Stemilt growers that we weren't able to cover today. Make sure you check out Stemilt's website to learn more. I'll put the link in the description. The reason I do this show, the reason I do this show, is to help people connect with the past through food. Or better said, to help people connect with their past through food. And what I loved about my interview with Tate 
was getting a sense of his pride and passion for what he does. He shared some great stories and information on the family business. And what's going to stick with me for a while was hearing him describe his current role, how he gets to do a little bit of what his grandfather did in making sure their fruit is meeting the high standards we have as consumers, getting out there, talking with customers, what they think of the fruit, talking with stores. And it's just incredible to see him connect with his past through food by carrying on his grandfather's legacy. So food is all about stories and memories. And I loved the ultimatum after lackluster earnings of $88 on a nearly 100 ton cherry crop. When she said, Tommy, you figure out what is wrong and fix it or go get a job to support this family. Family businesses thrive on overcoming challenges and difficulties. A lot of the family businesses that I've had on the show have had different yet similar challenges they've had to overcome. So Tom did what it took to ensure that his company would have a place on Stemilt Hill for generations to come. In 1964, Tom officially gave the company their current name, Stemilt. He said that he did that because he wanted people, no matter where they were in the world, to know where their fruit came from. Again, if you want to find out more about Stemilt, and their website is fantastic. They have tons of recipes good information about their company, their history, the growers themselves, other family members that we didn't get to talk to today, and also some of the varieties they've developed. Uh, Check it out. There will be a link in the show notes to their website. Make sure you check it out. They've developed a few varieties of fruit. They have pinata apples, which according to their website are in season right now. So check it out in the store. Sweet Tango Apples, Rave Apples, and Skylar Ray Cherries. And in case you were wondering, Tate's favorite apple variety is Sweet Tango. I'm still on the hunt for these varieties in the stores. As soon as I'm able to try them, I'll report back. I think I went to four or five stores this past week looking, trying to sample this stuff. So if you beat me to it, I'd love to hear about it. That's all I have for you this week. If you like what you heard, subscribe and consider leaving a quick review. It really does help others find the show. And again, if you happen to try some of Stemilt's apples and fruit, you know, they do apples, pears, cherries, let me know. I'd love to hear how that goes. (laughs) Hit me up on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Toasty Kettle. You can also comment on the show notes posted at ToastyKettle.com. Until next time.